How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the flower, uh, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, to focus on the eternal truths of your word, to be reminded of your greatness and your grandeur, all that you have provided for us. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we got back from the trip to uh, Greece yesterday afternoon, and uh, I was thinking about it this afternoon that the last two times I've gone overseas, been to Ukraine this year and Russia, came back on a Friday and Sunday morning, got up and taught just fine on Sunday morning. But this is Wednesday afternoon, and I'm about as brain dead as I can be from the jet lag. So if I sit here and just stop, stop talking and stare off into space, well, you'll just have to understand. You you've already know that I'm out of it. I said we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and I just started praying. So it may be a long or a short evening. And for those of you who want to know about the trip, it was a great trip. Let me encourage you to never go on a group tour if you want a vacation. It is not a vacation. We had several mornings where wake-up call was at 5.30, breakfast was at 6.15, and we were to be on the bus ready to go at 7 o'clock. So we covered a lot of territory. I didn't realize how much until, uh, I guess it was Monday afternoon as we were leaving Corinth and on the highway back to, did I just lose, something changed on the sound just then. Did you hear it? Okay, you turn it down. Okay, I just noticed it was different. Um, yeah, they could hear me in the next way. They could hear me in Greece. We were on the way back to Athens from Corinth, which I don't think is that far. It's about a two-hour drive. Maybe maybe I don't, I, some of that's time. I don't think it's quite 150 miles, maybe 120 miles. But the sign, we were about halfway back to Athens, and the sign said it was, I think, 600, no, it sounds off. It's not coming through on the speakers over here. There, is that better? Can you hear me? Am I coming out of the sound over there on the left? On your, my left, your right. Can you hear me okay over there? So we were on our way back to Corinth and it was 650 kilometers from that point back to Thessaloniki. So that's close to 400, 400 miles. So we still got sound problems. Speakers are not working. They're too low. You got it too low now. So you crank me up a little bit more. How's that? There, there we go. Everybody is nodding their heads. That's okay. So that's about 400 miles. So I figure we covered a tremendous amount of territory because the first day we flew into Thessaloniki and then we drove, then the first day we drove up to what they call Philippi. See, I'm trying to realize now that the, the way we pronounce Greek most of you don't know this, but Greek pronunciation, the way it's taught 
in seminaries, classical studies, wherever, is based on a system of pronunciation developed by Erasmus, who was a uh, classic scholar in the er early uh, 16th century. We're talking about the same. He's a contemporary of Luther, so he developed this system of pronunciation, but he never heard anyone speak Greek. So he, he just developed a system of pronunciation. So I, the question is, who has a better idea of how Greek should be pronounced? Some uh, medieval scholar who didn't ever hear the, the language spoken, or modern Greeks. Of course, modern Greek is different from Koine and ancient Greek, just as much as, as uh, modern English is different from medieval English or, or old English. Nevertheless, there's a lot of similarity, so they pronounce it Philippi. And every time you have an EU combination in a word, like we would just pronounce it Euangelion or Eusebia, they pronounce the U as if it's an F. So that's why we get evangelism when in the Greek it's an EU, not an EV. So there were some differences, but we went up to Philippi and uh, Kavala, which is the area... Uh, now uh, we're in biblically known as Neapolis, which is where Paul landed. And then we spent the second night in Thessaloniki. Then the next day we went down to uh, what the Bible calls Berea. They pronounce it Varia. Uh, the almost, there, there's no B's. or there's, There is, but if it's an M-P, it's pronounced B. Uh, but the, the, the beta is a veda. They pronounce it like a V in all the words. So it's Varia, it's Vivlas, it'd be Bible instead of Bible. So we went down to Varia, and then we went to a few other places. Uh, on the way down, about the third day, we went to the Oracle of Delphi, which I spent a lot of time talking about, the mysticism related to uh, the Oracle of Delphi. That was fascinating. Got some great pictures there. Went on to Athens. Then we got on the boat and went to uh, the Isle of Rhodes and the Isle of Patmos and Ephesus. Ephesus was fascinating. Uh, it's the largest, uh, one of the largest cities where we have almost, uh, and much of it is still covered with dirt. What I didn't realize was in the early 1900s, they discovered the site of Ephesus, but because of earthquakes and I guess just silt and dust storms and everything else, the entire city was had been buried. All the remains have been buried. They're having to dig everything out, and they still haven't dug everything out. And the population of Ephesus at the time of the first century is probably a couple of hundred thousand people. Uh, same in Corinth, very large cities, much larger than than um, I would have imagined. The last uh, the last day we came back, we landed. I think the boat docked in a Athens about six in the morning. We had to disembark at seven. Then we caught the bus and we were headed to Corinth. We got just outside of Corinth, stopped for a rest stop, so that everybody could uh, walk across the the canal that that was dug there at the Isthmus of Corinth, get water, drink, snacks, whatever. And while we were there, five minutes from the from Corinth, five minutes from the ruins of Corinth, as we're about to load on the bus, the tour director uh, stopped me. Now, along the tour, we had had teaching moments at each of these places, at Philippi, at the Theater of Philippi, at Thessaloniki, at... Um, uh, Berea, Isle of Patmos, and some of the different tour hosts. I wasn't a tour host. I was just along for the ride, incognito, just enjoying a nice, relaxed time. And um, 
So we'd had these teaching moments all the way along. Well, this guy came up to me. Uh, remember, we're five minutes from Corinth, and he said, Robbie, I just uh, realized we don't have anybody to teach at, uh, about the Bema seat or judgment seat of Christ when we get to the Bema at Corinth. And uh, Ed Heinsohn just mentioned to me that you wrote the article for Crowns and Rewards in the new uh, uh, Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. And would you give a talk on the judgment seat of Christ? So I said, sure, fine, that'd be great. You know, when I was ordained, I was told I had to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. So <laughs> this is the moment's notice. So we got there, and, and of course, by this time, it's about 10 o'clock, and it was already in the upper 90s. And found out after we got back here that Greece had, a, as if maybe they're still having, a major heat wave. So it was very hot, and nobody was in the shade, and I talked for about 20 minutes. And then we spent another couple of hours looking at the ruins at Corinth. And that was a real high point for me to be able to teach the group there. There were about 100 in our tour and to teach at that particular point. So that was that was fun. Of course, Tommy Ice was also on the trip, and Tommy got to teach at Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Athens, which I know was a high point for him. So, I mean, that's like a couple of kids in a candy store. So we just had a fantastic trip, had a lot of pictures, and uh, just got back exhausted because of the heat and everything. We got back to the airport a couple hours later, and uh, didn't have any water. The power was down at the airport. It wasn't uncomfortable, but it wasn't comfortable in the airport. And there wasn't any place to buy bottled water. In fact, when we finally got on the plane, one of the group had heat exhaustion. So by the time we hit Frankfurt on the way back and we spent the night there, it was 57 degrees in Frankfurt. We were very glad to be there. And we probably drank the hotel dry when we, when we arrived. We were just a, just a, a tired, thirsty bunch. Well, I don't want to spend the whole class tonight talking about that, but I do want to go back and continue our review in Genesis 1. The trip was great, and it also provided a great illustration of why it's so important to understand some of the principles that I have been emphasizing again and again in our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and that is the importance of maintaining and understanding the radical creator-creature distinction that the Bible presents, that no other story of origins, no other um, no myths, no pagan myths on, the, uh, on creation stories or evolution or anything else, has the kind of radical distinction between the creator and the creation that the Bible presents. So I am reviewing, just during the month of July, basically, the four major events that we've seen in our study, the first part of Genesis. And that is, first of all, the the creation. We divided uh, Genesis into two major sections. The first 11 chapters focus on four events. The second half, from chapter 12 to chapter 50, focuses on four people. The four events are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And last time I began with an overview in terms of review and just barely touched on the creation. And probably next time I'll get to the fall and then the flood and Babel. I'm pulling things together, adding some things I didn't quite get to the first time around. And as we went through it the first time, I was still studying and working through some details 
So I want to pull that together. Now, last time we looked at the fact that that as believers, when we come to Genesis, we, there's a couple of things that we believe. First of all, we believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the Bible. This is literal history, and we have to treat it as history. This is a legend. It's not mythology. And it is radically distinct from anything else that you'll find uh, out there. And this really came home <clears throat> as we were on the tour the last uh, ten days and listening to the various tour guides who, even though they were, quote, Christian, of course, the one tour guide that we had in and Ephesus was not. He was a he was a Turk and a Muslim and tried to pull some uh, Islamic apologetic stuff on our group. I unfortunately was not there when he did. He made some statement about um, the fact that Christianity never really identified who Jesus Christ was and at the and he made up some major mistake. He said at the one of the last at the last not one of the last but at the last ecumenical council which was held there at Ephesus in four thirty one, they still couldn't decide who Jesus Christ was. Well, you know makes a statement like that in front of my good friend Tommy Ice. And we've studied Christology and 431. The issue really wasn't the person of Christ. That had been resolved at Ephesus, but it was finally nailed 30 years or 20 years later in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. And we've studied that. But the Council of Ephesus, the issue was uh, something called monophysitism, which we haven't studied that much. But it had to do with the relationship of the uh, soul, uh, the human soul of Christ to his, to his deity. But he also tried to uh, make a statement, or this guy did, that Islam was a religion of peace. And uh, one guy, one evangelist there, Southern Baptist evangelist, said, well, what do you do with, uh, and he quoted chapter and verse from the Quran that said that we need to kill all the pagans and all the Christians and all the Jews. And that they got into a very heated discussion there. But uh, he finally had to back off of a lot of stuff because he was uh, seriously outgunned. Um, first 11 chapters of Genesis are, are the foundation of the Bible, and they're radically distinct from anything else. What these guys were trying to do was to say, well, they had their views of creation, but it was a little muddled, but it got clearer and clearer until the Bible came along. And then in Christianity, of course, we had a clear uh, a revelation of creation. See, what they're trying to do is say that, that the the the, the pagan Greeks had an understanding of creation that was, it was okay, it was just out of focus. And the guide even made the statement at one point that if Alexander the Great had lived 400 years later, he would have been a great Christian. Tommy and I just, we, we were riding next to each other in the bus. We had to work very hard to keep our our mouths shut at a lot of these kinds of comments because it's a failure to understand this creator-creature distinction. And unbelief and paganism and human viewpoint is always trying to spin divine viewpoint into its own frame of reference. And we just, every time the guides try to explain some things about uh, ancient Greek mythology, and then they would come over into Christianity. It was always this sort of uh, spin control. 
and uh, especially because the guy probably was heavily influenced from Greek orthodoxy and the icons and statues, and they would go back to the fact that the ancient Greeks built statues of, the, of their uh, of their gods, and then this was just natural for them to go over to the icons, and it really wasn't idolatry which, of course, it was idolatry, and the Bible labels it idolatry. But it was such a great example of how human viewpoint is constantly trying to take the Word of God and just shift it, just slightly twist it and reshape it into something that is acceptable to rebellious, autonomous man rather than dealing with the radical distinction that the Bible presents that God is a God who created everything from nothing. So this is what we see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis and why they are the battleground. So we saw last time that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the Bible, and second, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of human history. They become the framework for our thinking. And I said this, we have the example here that on the left, on the chart, we have divine viewpoint. And in divine viewpoint, God is the one who interprets for us Creation. He tells us how to understand his creation. We don't generate it on our own through rationalism or empiricism. So when Adam and Eve are in the garden, they could figure out a lot of things on their own, but in terms of the ultimate interpretation of what was right, what was wrong, uh, they couldn't do it. So you have in divine viewpoint God saying, You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. Whereas in contrast, human viewpoint, which is also what I call cosmic thinking, worldliness, and is tantamount to satanic or demonic thought or paganism, human, viewpoints want to, want, human viewpoint wants to reinterpret that on the basis of human experience. And so Satan comes along and completely contradicts God and says, you will not die. So God says one thing, but human viewpoint has another way of saying it. The proverb says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So we saw that the Bible presents this as the foundation of human thought, the foundation of human history. What is unique is the Bible begins with God as the ex nihilo creator. We've seen that phrase that ex nihilo means is a Latin phrase meaning out of nothing that there was nothing in existence until God spoke and then the universe came into existence. There wasn't space, there wasn't time, there wasn't matter, there wasn't energy. There was nothing whatsoever in existence. God spoke and everything came into existence. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth represents the totality of all that is. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the world, literally ages, were framed by the word of God, so that the, and that is the spoken word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Other passages reinforce this, such as John 1.3, Psalm 33.6, Colossians 1.16. The Bible presents a unified view of reality, whether you start in Genesis, whether you look in the Psalms, whether you look in the Gospels, or you look in the Epistles. The Bible reinforces itself. <coughs> Excuse me. The Bible reinforces itself from one place to another, has a unified view of reality, always maintaining this creator-creature distinction. I developed this chart 
where on the one hand we have the God of the Bible who is presented as a personal and infinite God. He is personal. He is capable of relationship. He is. He knows himself and he can be known by his creatures, yet he is also infinite. He has no beginning and no end. He is not restricted in terms of his knowledge, in terms of his presence, or in, <clears throat> in terms of any of his attributes. Yet there is a vast distinction between God and everything else. So there's this black bar that I draw here, and beneath that, We have the finite universe, which includes everything in the universe. Uh, Man, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy are all distinct from God. We're not part of God. We're not an extension of God. We're not little gods. It's not Dr. God and Mr. Man. Everything in the universe is radically separated from God. But all other views... All other views, it doesn't matter what the view is, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, ancient uh, Near Eastern cosmogonies, whether it's modern views such as uh, Darwinian evolution, every other view other than the the Judeo-Christian view of the creator-creature distinction has a blending. It's called the chain of being or continuity of being. And ultimately what you have is an infinite, impersonal universe. If God isn't the infinite, then he's going to replace, be replaced by something else. He's always being replaced by something in the creation. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that man rejected God, suppressed the truth, or held the truth in unrighteousness. That is, he wrapped the truth in unrighteousness. It's a dative of sphere there indicating this idea of twisting or reshaping or spinning the truth in unrighteousness, and he worships the creature rather than the creator. So there's always vacuum. Once you reject God, into that vacuum will necessarily flow something in the creation. So the universe itself becomes a, a replacement for God. So there's something there in the universe that's infinite. You go to the Big Bang. It starts off with this intensely uh, compact, condensed matter, and, and it explodes. But what was there ten minutes before the Big Bang? There was still something there. There was always something. And it's so the universe is impersonal, and it's the infinite, according to all other views of origins. And then the universe itself or the creation, which is described by this circle that I've drawn, inside that circle you have God, man, nature, you know, God, man, nature, vegetation, everything is included within that. We're all subsumed into this one category. They're all related to each other. There's no creator-creature uh, distinction whatsoever. So the universe itself becomes uh, deified. This is why origins and the study of origins and creation is so important. That's why it's a battlefield. That's why it needs to be a battlefield in education. It, how you view your origins it affects everything. The origination or the beginning of anything, any organization, any task, is directly related to its purpose and meaning. So if you want to understand why a church exists, you have to go back to its founding, its origin. Why did Jesus Christ found the church? What is its purpose? The purpose of any organization is directly related to its uh, its origins. 
So when God uh, intentionally planned and executed the creation of mankind, it was for a purpose. And he is the one who defines the meaning and purpose for creation. In contrast, in human viewpoint, according to all the various uh, views of origins that man has generated, ultimately, in every system, man is just the product of, of time plus chance. If you push it back far enough, even in the... Um, some of the other religious views, it ultimately goes back to that kind of, of, uh, of system, that the universe is some sort of eternal that just self-generates itself, as we'll see before we're done this evening, if I make it that far. Ultimately, the meaning for man is derived from something in creation. For example, in Marxism, the ultimate purpose for man is derived from from society itself and how man functions in society as a as a worker his his uh, role in relationship to the economy and in, in relationship to society in existentialism meaning comes from the individual himself you assign your own meaning to life the only there's no meaning that's assigned from god meaning is determined by what you want life to be and this ultimately is what happens also in postmodernism, meaning is whatever in e- each culture uh, determines the meaning is. So it, there's no absolute truth; it's it's relative to to a culture. Uh, in nihilism, there's no meaning whatsoever. Life is just meaningless. We're just ra- randomly here, and one day we die, and that's it. Uh, then there's the utilitarian view. Meaning in life is based on what you produce, what you contribute, what you, your, your work, uh, whatever you produce for society. That's uh, the utilitarian view. But the Bible says that over against that, man is created in the image and likeness of God, and he has a purpose in resolving the angelic conflict. So your view of origins then becomes a foundation for everything in society. It's, it affects your view of law. It affects your view of, of life. It affects your view of marriage, family, society, political institutions. Everything is affected by origins. So this is why uh, there's such a radical battle over what's taught in public schools, whether it's creation, and it doesn't have to be religious. You can teach scientific creation. Of course, ultimately it's going to end up implying that there's a creator. But you don't have to necessarily teach theology along with it. Origins provides a foundation for everything in Society. Now, last time when we looked at creation and we looked at the importance of it and how to understand the first 11 chapters, we saw that in the New Testament, Jesus interprets the events of the Old Testament literally. He, he interprets the creation of, of Adam and Eve literally. He talks about uh, that they were created male and female, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He interprets the flood literally. New Testament writers as well interpret all of these events literally. They interpret creation literally. For example, 1 Corinthians 11, 9, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Ephesians 3, 9, Colossians 1, 16, all interpret creation as an ex nihilo creation. That the Bible begins with God as the creator. Now, as we looked at Genesis chapter 1, In our study, we saw that Genesis presents God as 
unique uh, in contrast to all the gods and goddesses of all the other ancient Near Eastern religions. In Genesis chapter 1, the emphasis is on God's majesty, on his uh, power, his omnipotence, that God creates everything. He has the omniscience to create all of the different life systems, all the biosystems, all the uh, uh, atmospheric systems, all of the uh, hydrospheres, the, the water systems on the planet, so that everything works together and is uh, completely integrated. We see his sovereignty, that he is the ruler over creation, and he is the one who defines creation. He's the one who defines man and his role in creation. He stands, uh, nevertheless, completely apart from creation and is the one who rules creation and oversees the history of mankind. Uh, Psalm 100, I mean, Psalm 89, 11 says that the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. When we get into the first chapter of Genesis, excuse me a minute, when we look at Genesis, we see the emphasis on God as creator. The first thing we see is that God is distinguished from the creation. This is what I've mentioned already is the creator creature distinction. For example, in 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Chronicles 16:26, the writer notes for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Once again, there's this contrast that the peoples, the nations develop all of these gods, but it is Yahweh who makes the heavens. Nehemiah 9.6, we read, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, that is, the angels, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So we see this creator-creature distinction that runs through Genesis 1 and is foundational to the rest of Scripture. Furthermore, we see that God reveals himself to man. He is not only the God of Israel, but He is the God of all the people. He is the God who created everything. He is the one who speaks and everything comes into existence. Uh, he, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all of their hosts. Furthermore, we see that it is God who restores life where there is death. In Genesis 1-1, we note that there is a an original creation. And then in Genesis 1-2, there is darkness on the face of the earth, uh, darkness on the face of the deep, and the earth is without form and void. And, of course, this brings into uh, focus a, a, um, a controversy, and that is, is there a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? And we've studied this in detail but we need to keep going over it to make sure we understand it. Now, there's an old view, which I'll call the old gap view. Now, this view has been traced back at least as far far as the 1st century or 2nd century A.D. This is the period from about 100 to 200 A.D. in the Jewish writings, the Targum of Jonathan. And the Targum of Jonathan recognizes that there is between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, 
a lapse of time during which time the angels are created and we have the fall of Lucifer. Now, that view is uh, also supported throughout the centuries until we get down to the 19th century. In the 19th century, you have a lot of pressure from historical geology and from biology. Darwin hasn't come along yet, but you're still getting pressure from historical geologists from uniformitarianism. Now, we've studied this in the past. Uniformitarianism is the underlying idea that all processes on the earth follow a uniform decay process. And if you can uh, can uh, understand that what that process is today, then you can extrapolate back into the past to see how old the earth is, how long this process has been going on. And so historical geology in the early 19th century was projecting an age of the earth of about 50,000, 60,000 years. So in the early 19th century, some theologians came along, and they were trying to somehow fit the Bible with these new discoveries in science. And so they kidnapped or hijacked this old gap view and said, oh, well, what we'll do instead of just having the angels and the fall of Lucifer in here between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, we'll ram, cram, and jam all the historical ages in there. And so the Bible can still uh, fit with modern science, and the earth can be 50 or 60,000 years old. Now, that's one thing to try to make the earth 50 or 60,000 years of age, but to try to come up with three or four billion years, like today, or ten billion years, is, is another story. And this was false. It was based on false exegesis and a desire to, to make the Bible compatible with human viewpoint. Once again, you see how human viewpoint seeks to uh, absorb the Bible and to put a spin on the Bible so there's not a radical distinction between what the Bible says and what is being taught in the secular classroom. But you can't get away with that. And some of the leaders here were uh, Thomas Chalmers, who was a Presbyterian uh, leader in Scotland. He was, a, he was probably the foremost theologian of his day in Scotland. And he, there were many positive things that Chalmers uh, contributed, but this wasn't one of them. Later on, you have a man by the name of G.H. Uh, Pember, who wrote a book called Earth's Earliest Ages, uh, around the end of the 19th century, and he popularized Chalmers' view, and many others took up that view, but it can't be supported by Scripture. And the basic, or one of the basic problems is, is if you put all of the geologic ages into this period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, then you have a problem because you have a lot of dead things. And see, all those fossils that you find out there are dead things. And we saw the Ken Ham film where he has his little uh, mantra that uh, you have millions of dead things all over the earth buried in uh, water, and that indicates that something catastrophic happened. But see, the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we've been studying on Sunday morning, that death came by Adam. And the context isn't spiritual death, it's physical death, because the context is talking about physical bodily resurrection. 
So, obviously, you can't have physical death, which is a result of, of Adam's sin, physical death in all of creation, until after Genesis 3. So you can't have dead things coming in between 1-1 and 1-2 because there hasn't been a fall yet. So it is a, a direct attack on the necessity of the cross. And it's also a desire to assimilate to the need to find lots and lots and lots of time. But see, the only reason that people are coming up with time is because they want to somehow assimilate and accept all the dating uh, mechanisms that modern biology and geology and physics have come up with. And we spend time studying the fact that this is all built on a false assumption of uniformitarianism, which affects how they analyze everything um, from uh, affects hydrocarbon, uh, carbon-14 dating, uh, potassium-argon dating, and their problems in all of those dating systems, and it just doesn't work out. Once again, we've got to quit letting science or modern archaeology dictate how we interpret the Scripture. Now, the old gap view is often challenged because people don't like the new gap view. But uh, the, new, the, the uh, old gap view really doesn't have any major problems. Now, one of the reasons people come along and they say this is because God says at the end of the um, uh, six days that everything was very good. And as he goes through the process of creating each day, says he created, God spoke, and he created certain things and saw that it was uh, good, and that was day one. Or that was good, and it was day two. And then at the end it says everything was very good. And they want to say, well, you see, it's very good, which means... Uh, no, there could not be any sin in the universe because it was very good. So what they've done is they've looked at this word good, which is the Hebrew word tov, T-O-V, and they've imported a moral sense to that word good. They've said that because God said it was very good, there couldn't have been a fall. There couldn't have been any sin there. The problem is... You've got to let word usage determine meaning. And over in Genesis chapter 2, God looks at Adam and he says, It's not good, Tov, same word, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, if good has a moral connotation, then what God is saying is it's immoral for man to be alone. Now, that doesn't make sense. No, what God is saying by Tove is whether or not something fits the blueprint or not, whether it's the way he intended it or not. So when God went about something on the first day and he separates the light from the darkness and he looks at it and he says it's good, then, then it's exactly as he intended. When it comes to the end of the process, he examines everything he's created in those six days of restoration, says it's very good. It's precisely what he intended it to be. And so... Uh, there, it's not an indication of whether there has been a fall, a satanic fall or sin in the universe uh, or not. It is simply the emphasis that there is, everything is exactly as God intended it to be. But it doesn't necessitate that there's a lot of time there. It doesn't take long before people mess up or probably before the angels messed up. But I don't think there's any reason uh, when we study the Scriptures to assume that billions and billions of years had to go by before... Uh, Satan fell. It could be a period of 100 or 200 years. So this has created a tremendous controversy between people who are old earthers and young earthers. And once again, I say the only reason to go with an, any kind of an old earth 
and I, I mean, you know, millions and millions or billions of years, is because of pressure from the dating mechanisms of uh, human human viewpoint science. And we've seen the problems with that. So God creates. The other reason there's a pr- problem is from the Scripture itself. For example, in Job 38.4-7, God is asking a number of rhetorical questions of Job. Uh, Job has wanted to, is questioning God as to why he allowed him to go through all this suffering, and God never answers him because God's point is that... that um, that he's God and he has the right to do whatever with his creation, whatever he wants, and he has the right to rule in our lives however he chooses. And so he asked Job something like 240 rhetorical questions in the last part of the book to emphasize the fact that Job is just an ignorant cre- creature and can't, doesn't have any right to question the creator. And as part of this series of questions in Job 38, 4 through 7, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have under understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Notice the emphasis there is on the very beginning of the building of the structure, its foundations, its cornerstone. When... The morning stars, that's a term for angels, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, notice no division has yet appeared, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now the reason I emphasize that is because when you look at folks who take, and there's a lot of good men who believe in a literal seven-day creation week with no gap or time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. But the men who do that have to say that the creation of the angels doesn't take place until either the third day or the fourth day. And so for them, the fall of Satan can't take place until after the sixth day. The problem with this is that Job 38, 4-7 suggests that the all of the angels sing for joy when the foundations of the earth are laid. All of the angels are there when God first lays the foundation for the heavens and the earth. And this is further substantiated by Hebrews 1.10, where the writer of Hebrews says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. When is the laying of the foundation? It's in the beginning. It's the first thing. And the heavens are the work of your hands. So the point I'm making there is that Scripture indicates from Job 30, comparison of Job 38, 4 through 7 with Hebrews 1, 10, that the angels are created and in existence when God begins to lay the foundation for the earth. So that would further support the view that there is a, uh, a lapse between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, and the terms darkness on the face of the deep, darkness deep, and tohu vabohu, the uh, earth was empty and waste or without form and void, indicates some form of judgment. For example, that phrase is used in Isaiah 45:18, which says that God did not make the world a tohu. He did not originally create the world waste. So this seems to suggest uh, that uh, something transpired to cause it to be that way, and that would be the angelic revolt and the subsequent judgment of the angels by God. Now, another thing that we looked at by way of review is the Enuma Elish, which is the, Mesop- uh, is the Mesopotamian creation epic. 
This is just one example of many of how the ancient civilizations related their own origin stories. And this is important because when we get involved in creation, evolution uh, debates today, we often think, well, this is something that's unique to us. No, it's not. The early, uh, the, the, the Jews, when they were in the land, had to fight the same battle. Everybody around them had their creation stories that were different from the Bible. There's always been a conflict between those who believed in a Genesis, a literal Genesis 1, and the surrounding human viewpoint cultures. But what we pointed out when we went through this a year and a half ago is that all of these ancient pagan views really have a lot in common with modern scientific uh, explanations of, of origins. And although they, they personified the forces of nature in these ancient creation epics, uh, they're basically the same kind of idea that you have today. <coughs> now, I just want to read through parts of this, and we'll point out, a, make a couple of observations as we go along. The Enuma Elish really wasn't written to explain creations. It was written to explain the ascendancy of Babylon. It's a political document. It's written to show why Marduk, who was the god of Babylon, his temple was in, in uh, Babylon, why he should be worshipped above all other gods and why Babylon should be the greatest power in the ancient world over the other gods. So Anubal Elish is going to show how Marduk uh, defeated the other gods at the time of the original cre- uh, creation of the universe and so it begins with origins. See, origins relates to politics. How do you explain your your political base and why you should be um, and uh, you, you should be superior to all other nations? Well, you have to go back to the beginnings. So this is what again uh, substantiates my point that origins are crucial to understand almost everything in our in our society. Okay, it begins when above. That's the Akkadian Enuma Elish. When above, the heaven had not yet been named, and below, the earth had not yet been called by a name. So it starts off, and, and the, the heavens and the earth haven't been named. All we have is just is, is, is actually chaos. This is what you have in other origin myths, but there's matter there. There's something there. And this is what they identify by three gods. When Apsu primeval, their begetter, Mumu and Tiamat, she who gave birth to them all, still mingled their waters together. Now, what's the mental picture that you have of Apsu, Mumu, and Tiamat right there? They're mingling their waters together. What are, they, are they immaterial or are they material? They're material. They're mingling their waters together. They're rather amorphous. They don't have any specific shape or form, but they are Physical, there's material. So what is there at the, in existence at the beginning of creation? There's some kind of matter there. It's, it's unformed maybe. It's chaotic waters. But it's there. There's, there's matter. It doesn't begin with nothing. It begins with something. And it goes on to read, And no pasture land had been formed, and not even a reed marsh was to be seen, when none of the other gods had been brought into being. So you just have these three gods. Now, that's not a trinity like we have in the Scripture, but it's interesting that you do begin with three gods. When none of the other gods had been brought into being, when they had not yet been called by their names, and their destinies had not yet been fixed, 
At that time were the gods created within them. See, uh, the, the, gods are, the other gods that are going to come are going to come out of them. And that's what you see in most of these uh, pagan mythologies in the ancient Near East. It's through some sort of sexual activity that the other gods are created and eventually the universe is created. It goes on to read, uh, they live many days and then... Um, uh, you have these other gods that's mentioned. Well, skip, the, the dashed lines there indicate skips in the narrative. Uh, skipping down, the divine brothers gather together. These are the other little gods that are born. They disturbed Tiamat and assaulted their keeper. This is like a bunch of children bo- bothering uh, the parents. Yea, they disturbed the inner parts of Tiamat, moving and running about in the divine abode. So you get this idea of just chaotic activity. The other gods are running amok because there's no discipline in the family, uh, not unlike modern families. Uh, Marduk took from Kingu the tablet of destinies. Notice this idea of fate, that everything that they're doing is somehow controlled by this tablet of destinies. It's a genetic predisposition. It's not their fault they do it this way. This is what was written in the tablet of destinies. So what you see here is impersonal fate. So how does this differ from modern modern evolution stories? See, you start off with chaos, with some sort of mass, and it, everything just sort of self-generates out of that matter according to some sort of predetermined uh, impersonal fate. And then we see the creation itself. Uh, strengthening his hold upon the captive gods, this is Marduk. Then he returned to Tiamat, whom he had subdued, the Lord, that is Marduk, trod upon the hinder part of Tiamat. Now, notice the physical nature here, the physical picture here. You see her having some sort of material body, and he has grabbed the hind end, and with his unsparing club he split her skull. He cut the arteries of her blood and caused the north wind to carry it out of the way places. Marduk split Tiamat open like a muscle into two parts, Half of her he set in place and formed the sky as a roof, and he fixed the crossbar and posted guards, and he commanded them not to let her waters escape. That was the, the chaotic waters mentioned earlier. And a great structure, a counterpart, he established, namely Eshara, that is the earth. He created stations for the great gods, the stars, their likenesses, the signs of the zodiac, etc. In other words, out of her body parts, those physical body parts, he creates all the elements in, in the universe. So this is just an example of a creation myth that starts with something. It's not a creation ex nihilo. So uh, one of the reasons I put that up there is that, that you all will frequently run into uh, college professors who will say that the way the, that Moses came up with the creation story in Genesis was he just borrowed from these other ancient mythologies that were present. Now, this was what was present in the ancient Near East when, when the Jews came into uh, the land and when Moses wrote Genesis 1. Did you see a lot of similarity between the two? Not at all. There's no similarity whatsoever. However, there's a lot of similarity between uh, the uh, Babylonian mythology and that of modern Darwinism. They start with chaos, and then it, it sort of itself generates uh, and creates something out of something. And then there's this this sort of uh, uh, change or evolution from one thing out of another. The Greeks borrowed these ideas and shaped them into their own myths. And there's various shades of uh, Greek 
origin myths. Orpheus starts off with time. Time exists first. There's no actual beginning. You just have this eternal time that goes on and on and on. Time generates chaos, which is an enormous space that contains night and mist and the upper regions of the air that's called ether. Time, which is personified, uh, commands and mist spins around with huge, with a, with such speed that the mass of chaos congeals and solidifies into the shape of a huge egg which broke into two halves which became heaven and earth. Doesn't that sound something like the Big Bang? So it's the same kind of thing. In fact, you have the beginning of time plus random chance generates matter from which everything else is generated. Homer saw that the earth was flooded with the with an ocean, so it begins with just a watery chaos. That's at the very beginning, and then everything else comes out of that watery chaos of Oceanus. Uh, Hesiod, uh, Hesiod explains the creation. He begins with the existence of chaos, which is just an undefined, in, uh, infinite, immeasurable space. From chaos comes darkness, uh, Erebus, and his sisters Nix and Gaia, and then Erebus and Nix have a daughter, Day, and a son, uh, Ether or Air. And Gaia, the earth goddess, gives birth to a son, uh, Uranus, who is the heavens. And then eventually uh, uh, Uranus and Gaia give birth to Zeus, and then Zeus destroys his father. And, it, and then the other gods are created from there, and you develop the, th- the twelve gods of the, um, of the, of the Greek pantheon. So when you look at the Bible and the biblical account and set it over against the various origin myths, whether it's Greek or Babylonian or Egyptian, you see a tremendous difference. God is a personal, infinite God, and you don't have any ultimate person in any of these other uh, religions or uh, uh, cosmogonies. And in all of them, you have this indeterminate amount of time. In fact, let me skip through this slide. In fact, what you have, have I lost it, is a quote by Lucretius in the ancient world, which is quite instructive. He says, let me find the beginning of the quote, Certainly the atoms do not post themselves purposefully, and uh, let me see. Yes, this was a quote from Lucretius Carus, who was a Roman who wrote a uh, six-volume work called "On the uh, the Nature of uh, or on the Things of Nature or the Nature of Things," and this or the Nature of the Universe. He was an Epicurean. He writes, "Certainly the atoms do not post themselves purposefully in due order by an act of intelligence." nor did they stipulate what movements each should perform, as they have been rushing everlastingly throughout all space. Notice that eternality. They always existed, and they've just been rushing randomly throughout all space in their myriads, undergoing myriad changes under the disturbing impact of collisions. Notice time plus chance is going to produce something. But it's ultimately material things that have existed forever. Undergoing myriad changes under the disturbing impact of collisions, they have experienced every variety of movement and conjunction till they have fallen into the particular pattern by which this world of ours is constituted. 
This world has persisted many a long year, having once been set going in the appropriate motions. From these, everything else follows. Now, how does that differ from modern evolution? He also says, Nature is free and uncontrolled by proud masters and runs the universe by herself without the aid of gods. It's just self-generating. He goes on to say, I have taught you that things cannot be created out of nothing, nor once born be summoned back to nothing. So you see there's always eternal matter. And what I'm showing you here is that this idea that we have uh, uh, presented today in uh, evolution isn't new. These basic ideas go back to uh, the time right after the ark. When, when men got off the, off the boat, got off the ark at the time of the Tower of Babel, they began to generate their own ideas of creation that were in contrast to what they knew to be true that had been handed down from Noah. That's what Romans 1 is talking about, that man worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And so man in human viewpoint and in arrogance is always trying to come up with some way to explain his creation, some way to explain uh, all of creation apart from God so that he is can live his life without being answerable to God. So in our study of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see that God is a creator who creates man in his image, and as such, man, as the image bearer of God, is answerable to God for his behavior. And so we have the introduction of human responsibility and volition in Genesis chapter 2 with the uh, man being placed in the garden and the mandate not to eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And that sets us up for the second point in our review, which is the fall, which we'll uh, look at next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your, your word today, to realize who you are, that you are the God who created us for your purposes, and that the only way that we can find meaning and purpose and happiness in life is to orient our lives to your plan. Father, we thank you for your grace in providing salvation for us through Jesus Christ, and that through him, through faith alone and Christ alone, we can have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.